Richard, I, when I asked to have you on, I was given an hour, and I and I want to uh, make like an announcement at this point, like if that people who want to watch the second half of our conversation uh, to really get you know the the things that are taboo to hear what we can say off uh, not in public should go over to the Patreon. So like right now. What we talk about from this point on for the next 25 minutes or so is for people who are paying me a little something. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Inside Critical Theory brings you this Diet Soap interview. Professor Richard Wolff is an American Marxian economist. He is the co-founder of the journal Rethinking Marxism, the author of Capitalism Hits the Fan. He is probably one of the most prominent Marxists uh, in America today, um, and uh, he's been on the Zero Books YouTube channel when I ran that. He's coming back today to Diet Soap and Sublation. Sublation Press is the name of the new book company that I'm starting, if people don't remember that or haven't heard that yet. Um, Richard Wolf, thank you for coming back on to discuss socialist struggle, labor politics, and actually today I'd like to talk about the mask mandate with you because that was relevant before Omicron. Uh, so, so thanks for coming on. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that you're continuing the kind of work that I know was great before and that you're continuing it now is good news for all of us. Yeah, thank you. Um Listen, a few weeks back, I heard you were opposing the vaccine mandates, uh, that you'd taken a pretty strong stance about that, and that you were receiving some criticism and maybe even some attacks online about your position. Uh, I, wanted to, I want to walk through the position. I want to walk through your arguments for why you think the, the vaccine mandates are uh, something that the working class has a right to oppose, maybe a duty to oppose to, to, in this context. But I, I want to know, first of all, did you receive a lot of uh, negative attention uh, or were you canceled because of uh, your position on the vaccine mandates? I think there were folks. I don't know what a lot would be. Uh, you know, it's very hard in this business to know whether uh, the, the comments you get are reflective of exactly what proportion of your audience. And it's always mm. very difficult. And I'm no better at it than anyone else. We'd certainly got some. Uh, there were people who were upset with what I had to say, and that's fine. I mean, they, they have every right to be critical. I, I take the criticisms very seriously. I don't. Mm. I don't want to be dismissive in any way. I understand how upsetting all of this is that we're going through. Mm. I, I welcome people that are engaged and excited about what they think ought to be done. It's way better than the apathy that otherwise uh, might be out there. So I'm not upset by it, but yes, we got a considerable amount of uh, pushback. Um, some of it, if I can take a moment, some of it is a bit of a misunderstanding. Um, I've made it 
as clear as I know how that I am I'm appreciative that we have a vaccine. I am myself not vaccinated twice, plus that booster, as they mm-hmm. call the third one. So is my wife. So are my children. You know, And anyone who asks me, I tell them uh, what I believe, which is not that everything pharmaceutical companies give us is great and wonderful. Of course not. I'm a critic of those companies. They're out mm-hmm. to make money. That's their name. That's their game. And, and making us healthy may or may not be part of that game, but there's no necessary correlation there. So being skeptical of, of the science and being skeptical of the, I'm in favor of all of that, and I always have been. Likewise, I'm skeptical, heaven knows, about the logic or the motivations of the government we have in this society, given its subordination to capitalism as a system and to capitalists as big business folks in this country. So none of that has changed. But here is the thing that seems to bother people. For me, the labor movement, both the unionized and the non-unionized, is in a systemic struggle with the capitalist or the employer class. That's how capitalism is set up. And I understand that. And over the last three centuries that capitalism went from something that started in England, you know, in the 17th century and became the global system it is today, working people have struggled mortally. That is, they've suffered the death, they've suffered injury, they've struggled to get the right to organize, to get the right to have a union, to get the right to have limited hours of the day that they can be required to work. And one of the things they struggled for for 300 years was to have some power, some control in the workplace other than being, you know, some kind of zombie that or robot that is happens to be alive rather than the other kind of robot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a mandate, that's not the way we want to go, in my judgment. If there is a national health emergency, I see that, I think there is, then capital and labor need to get together and work out a way to deal with it. That's how you begin. If labor and and capital can't get a resolution, we better have, as we will with everything else in our society, some way to resolve their incapacity to work things out. But what I oppose then and now is some notion that either the government or uh, private uh, uh, employers are in the business of mandating anything. Anything they mandate should be questioned. That's not the way to get this done. It's a little bit like, if you allow me, and I'm exaggerating, but I want to make the point. It's like responding to teachers who used to say in schools, public and private, well, we have to hit the children in order to get them to quiet down, to get them to, no, you don't. That's, that is a very bad way to work out. A, sure, you have to have order. You have to have people paying attention. You can't have chaos in the class. All of that's correct, but your solution is not the way to go. So, yes, we should vaccinate people. 
Absolutely. We should do everything in our power to get that job done. But the notion that you start with mandating, and, and I must admit here, I'm a little bit affected by New York City, where I live and work. Mm -hmm. We have a mayor who I helped to get elected, a progressive, or so he told us, um, de Blasio, you may know about him. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was full of mandates that were not necessary. He could have called in our public employees in New York City are union organized, and they've been that way for decades. They are used to sitting down with Republican and Democratic mayors to work out solutions that are not mandated on them. And there was, for a progressive mayor to have been elected in part with union and working people's support, and he's a Democrat and all of that, uh, to turn around and do this mandate dance it was just this side of obscene, and that was where my my passion uh, came up. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I totally understand that the the one of the major points that you're trying to make here is that by allowing the state, uh, whether it's uh, New York City or you know the federal government, to impose mandates on workers, you're undermining the power of the workers themselves to to determine their own fate. The other thing that I've heard you say, though, is that um, sometimes the federal government or the city has to impose mandates like traffic lights you right. know, was the example you gave. So, you know, we all accept that there are limits to how we can drive, things that we have to obey, things we have right. to do, like stop when it's red. Um, but in this context of the vaccine, you argued, the vaccine, the science around the vaccine has shown that it is not quite the same as a stoplight. In other words, if I get vaccinated or not, it may not have that much of an effect on the uh, my fellow workers, that it might protect me from being sick, but it won't necessarily protect them from being infected because the, the breakthrough infection rate was much higher than anticipated. Um, so I, I have two kind of questions. Is that still your position or at what point does the reduction in infection justify a mandate because i think there is some and then the other uh question that i have has to do with how workers are to cope with scientific information how we as a working class movement are going to deal with specialized information that's constantly changing and also in an environment where free the free exchange of ideas is not so free that like for instance for a time on, on youtube if i had expressed the things that i was expressing now just to talk about them would risk getting a community strike or getting my videos taken down because of algorithmic control of what could be said so i'll just let you respond to all of that yes i i'm as affected as everybody else by the evolution of of, of scientific information if, mm -hmm. if you talk to the people involved epidemiologists and others which i'm doing and have been doing from the beginning uh, the first thing I've learned is that they're learning and that what we understood six months ago is not what we understand now about this disease. And that's not a flaw of science, the way that uh, that strange senator from Kentucky beats up on Fauci all the time. Uh, this is not a flaw of science. This is the virtue of science, that it's open, that it corrects itself, that it doesn't get all stuck in whatever it understood six months ago. So when I spoke, for example, on the Jimmy Dore show, 
uh, about this question. The science that was in my mind was what you just referred to. The information that was now being confirmed that people who have been vaccinated are as likely to infect the next person they uh, interact with as people who haven't. So that the critique of those who haven't, that they are somehow spreaders, was being undercut by what science was recording. I felt I had to go with that. It was the best science at that time. And as far as I know, that is still the scientific view that breakthrough or people getting the disease with vaccination, A, you can get it with being vaccinated for sure. Uh, apparently, it will not be as bad for you in terms of hospitalization and uh, death, uh, but you can get it, number one, and you can convey it to other people whether you have symptoms or not. So mm. all of that remains my view and my understanding. Mm. But I have learned something that makes me less opposed to mandates because I think they've become like the, the traffic light more even than when I first came up with that metaphor or that parallel. And here's what it is. I understand that hospitals around the United States and clinics and so on are at or near over full. They can't handle what they got. And that this is particularly true with pediatric uh, hospitals or pediatric mm -hmm. areas. And that's because you can't vaccinate children below a certain age, which means they don't have the protection against hospitalization and, and severe uh, symptoms. And they are coming to hospitals in, in huge, unprepared for numbers. I'm, I'm putting aside the failure of this country to prepare for this and to manage this, which yeah. is a scandal of proportions I'm sure you're dealing with and that really deserve uh, our, our opposition. Yeah. Put that aside. Just let me finish this point. Mm. So now I see a point of mandating. Now I'm beginning to say, wow, because if people who are sick for a hundred other reasons have heart trouble or cancer, they don't want to go to hospitals that are full of people with COVID. I mean, at a time when you have a heart trouble, that's when they tell you don't go anywhere near COVID because other conditions can be readily worsened by COVID. Okay, now we have something like the intersection. I want to be able to get in my car and drive through an intersection to see my mother or to visit the doctor or to have dinner with my friends. And I want the freedom to be able to navigate the intersection. I don't have that freedom if if people do not mandatedly subordinate their liberty to stopping when it's red and only going when it's green, because otherwise we're going to kill each other and I'm not going to have the freedom to visit. So I've learned, you know, I'm a Hegelian student of philosophy. I've learned that the world is full of situations where to get one liberty, you have to forego another. The blanket insistence on liberty is incoherent. It doesn't handle the real situation that to get one, you often, not always, but you often have to forego another one. And growing up seems to me when you learn that that's the kind of trade-off 
you're, you're living with. So I accept, as I know most Americans do, that little babies get a vaccination against smallpox in this country when they're born, and we have to stop at a red light or else a police person is going to give us a ticket. I, I get all that, and it seems to me once you can show that the general population is endangered by something, then you're in the place where we can at least begin to talk about abridging the liberty we have over here to get a bigger liberty over there. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I uh, completely agree with you about one thing that you said as a uh, off to the side, which is that uh, it's a scandal that over the last two years um, that we have not become more prepared and haven't built the infrastructure up to deal with the COVID pandemic on, on, on any level beyond where, what we were capable of at the start, it almost seems like. I mean, there were some efforts to expand uh, and provide COVID uh, centers, but uh, it's, it's still surprising to me um, that, you know, we're still being threatened with uh, being overwhelmed, even as the case rate and, and certainly the, uh, uh, the rate of illness has declined. I mean, the overall, the we are less sick from COVID by m many magnitudes, I think, than we were in March of 2020, right? But we, we nonetheless are still being overwhelmed. And it's, um, and like my ex-wife is a nurse. She tells me how uh, exhausted she is now. Yes, um, everywhere. And, yeah. And so I know it's really happening. I just, I'm not quite, I don't quite understand why. Um, and I guess maybe what it is, perhaps it's that we've put off for a while, all these other non COVID related treatments and the people have been staying away. And now as things loosened up, the people who were kind of backlogged are coming in and we've got COVID on top of it. Do you know what it is that's causing this uh, problem with overflow? Is it just that we don't have enough hospitals and ICUs and so far? Yeah, my understanding, again, from what I understand of the science, is that the Omicron variant, the one that mm. came after the Delta variant, mm. um, is even more readily transmissible or infectious, mm. if you want, uh, mm. than any other. And so that explains, at least, you know, it's kind of self-evident, why this thing is spreading so fast and why it's particularly spreading among the unvaccinated. Because whatever the vaccines do or don't do, they seem to have some effect. Looks like a good bit less than Pfizer and the others promised. Who's mm -hmm. surprised by that? But more than zero, which mm -hmm. is why everybody, including Donald Trump and all those other uh, folks, uh, are busy taking this vaccine because mm -hmm. they're persuaded of that uh, as well. Um, I have not had the disease. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those who doesn't. My wife hasn't, my children haven't, but we've been really washing our hands and wearing masks and all the rest of it uh, every chance that, 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 uh, that we go out. But my understanding is the hospitals are weren't ready for it. They weren't ready that this would be worse in terms of the number of people affected. They didn't think through that if it's more uh, transmissible among the unvaccinated, it's going to affect the children because we don't let the vaccines um, be jabbed into little kids, uh, at least in most parts of the country. We still don't. 
uh, if you're under five or under 12, I mean, it varies, which is itself a bizarre dysfunction of our society. Well, it makes it hard to know what, what, what to do. Yes. I mean, is it like in one state, it's you, you shouldn't have it if you're under 12, but in another, if you if you just move over another state, well, then you're fine to have it unless you're under five. Well, I mean, Doug, let, let me tell you something which, you know, may bother you. But then again, let, we can talk it out. Mm -hmm. um, the rest of the world is 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 in a state of shock, awe and laughter at the United. They can't figure out. We look like, you know, Joe Klutz trying to get <laughs> through the China shop without mm -hmm. smashing all the dishes. I mean, what are you doing? You're the richest country or one of them in the world. You have a highly developed medical system and you are a complete failure at coping or preparing for this disease. I mean, here's something that ought to scare people, mm -hmm. especially people who have any kind of libertarian or anarchist or uh, thoughts in their in their minds. I want you to compare for the minute the People's Republic of China, which we have troubles with, obviously, and the United States, because that comparison may be provocative. I hope so. Let's mm -hmm. look at the numbers. They're a country that has four times the population of the United States. For every American, there are four Chinese, more or less, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. We have had to date, as of I think the 8th of January, the last time I noted the statistics, we have had 57 and a half million people come down with COVID, one form or another. Mm -hmm. They have had, get ready, 133,000. We have had 825 or whatever the number is, 825,000 deaths. They haven't had 8,000 deaths. We have 100 times the fatality. When I was a young person going to public school in the United States, I was born in Ohio, lived here all my life. I was taught by a teacher, and I repeated it at home, and my parents got upset, which is why I remember this. I was told that Asian people have less respect for human life than we do here in the American West. Mm -hmm. All right. We are a country that has allowed 800 plus thousand of our fellow citizens to be dead. And we are watching a country, the largest in Asia, that didn't allow but 1% of that number to die in their country. Where then do you think respect for human life is in evidence relative to where? And for those of us who are worried, look, I understand what the Chinese do are these lockdowns. The government comes in and it mobilizes public and private property. It dictates everybody stays at home. Everybody is, is vaccinated. Everybody is traced. So we know who you talked to and who you visited. Yeah. And we're going to shut Wuhan down. And we're going to shut Xi'an province down. I understand that they trample over individual private uh, liberties, left and right. I get it. And I get that there are people deeply upset by that. Mm. But man, by our not dealing with this disease, we may not like what the Chinese are doing. But the United States, by its failure, 
is is driving the rest of the world to a position of admiring, respecting, and copying what's going on in China. And not to face that is to be that American mystery of the denial, like a three-year-old who thinks if you cover your face, the scary dog is somehow going to disappear until you get a little bit older and realize you can put your hands there, the dog will also remain there. Okay, well, I have one th- one question. I've, I'm going to sound like uh, maybe a conservative here, but um, when you have a state like China, and I want to ask about how Marxists should view the state overall, when you have a state like China, which has as such much power as the Chinese state has, um, uh, you be- and one without enough liberties for the general public, especially around speech and information, right. I I would be skeptical. I don't know how to judge the numbers that are coming out of China, um, especially given uh, the infectiousness of Omicron, which I think will be a game changer for the Chinese, just as you know, just like it is for everywhere else in the world. Um, but luckily, that's a much milder disease; it, it shouldn't create as, as much havoc. But um, do you believe that the that those numbers from China are reputable, and how do we judge that? I'll tell you, I'll give you the best answer I know how. Uh, For the last 25, 30 years, I'm an economist. I mean, what I mostly do is I study how the economies are working or not and so forth. Starting about 25, 30 years ago, the numbers coming out of China about the economic growth there, uh, the level of wages, all of that was so so much better, there's no other word to use, than what we have here in the United States, that a lot of people, myself included, wondered about the numbers. In other words, we're smart enough to know statistics is a very loosey-goosey business, unlike what statisticians would like to have us believe sometimes. There's an awful lot of judgment in collecting organizing, publishing statistics, and to believe that those nice, clear numbers are some one-to-one mapping of what's happening in the world means you've never done the work because you would know better than that. Okay, so we were very skeptical, and we were skeptical for years. There were lots of doubters. There were lots of making fun of their numbers and all of that. The problem is we can't do that anymore because it's been going on for 30 years. And if you visit China, you will see in about 10 minutes that they are for real. You can't build the skyscrapers in all those cities. You can't become the the place in the world that has the fastest train network on the planet. You can't realize that out of the 10 largest ports in the world for shipping, Seven of them are Chinese, and on and on and on. It's just too much. So we now know that those numbers, they may not have been exactly right. They may have been exaggerations, but they put us in the right ballpark. So you don't see that kind of skepticism anymore. You just don't. And this is among conservative, anti-communist, anti-Chinese. I mean, we just do it. So I'm inclined to take the numbers, which, by the way, I get from the World Health Organization, which uh, is, has its own skepticisms about China. Uh, I take my numbers from them uh, in order to, again, try to have a filter. So bottom line is 
the numbers may not be accurate, but the orders of magnitude, they look like it. And by okay. the way, China is also not the only country. I could give you New Zealand, not a communist country, not a yeah. communist. And New Zealand, I mean. Yeah, but I mean, New Zealand, the population is so small. It's an island. You know, it it, it, it is a lot easier to control the borders. Uh, it just, right, but, it, the healthcare right, but, system is so much better. I mean, there's just it's not a fair, it's not an apple to apples comparison. But I see what you're saying, though. I mean, we could have done know, a I, lot better. I, I think was, the way to compare it is United States to Europe. Yes, it's just, that's it, the comparison, and that that's actually we're not that much worse than all of Europe. And, no, you know, the, the Europeans have a lot to answer for, and they're going to have to answer mm-hmm. for it. That's right. Yeah. But what they have, what we don't have, of course, and that has changed everything there. But anyway, I, I, I don't want to get you had asked me earlier uh, uh, an earlier question. What does the working class do with scientific information? Yeah, right. Yeah. And I want to answer that because it's it's very, very important. We allow in our capitalist economic system, we allow People whose primary objective, and I take them at their word, they tell me this is their primary objective. They are in the business of making money. They reward their executives when the profit rate goes up, and they don't when the profit rate doesn't go up. Their Mm -hmm. stocks go up when their profits go up and go down when the profits shrink. In other words, we have a system that makes profit the bottom line, profit the goal. Okay, if that's how you organize the production of goods and services, you cannot then be shocked or surprised if those entities try to control the flow of information about their products to make them profitable. I mean, this I always find this amazing when I explain to my audiences here in the United States something which I am convinced they already know. So I had this bizarre, almost surrealistic moment. I'm busily explaining as best I can, but I'm explaining to someone whose eyes are telling me, I know this. I don't need you. And yet, when they then open their mouths two minutes later, it's clear they don't get it, or at least not yet. Mm. We, If the working class is going to have a risk, by the way, workers' skepticism about authority comes from the fact that we are, we are an advertising culture. Let's remember, what does an advertiser do? An advertiser figures out What is the best thing about whatever it is you're asking him to sell? And he tells you about it and he hypes it. What's the other thing he does? He hides or denies whatever the negative things are. I'm smart enough to know, as are most people, that almost everything in life has positive and negative attributes. And that part of living intelligently is trying to understand the pros and cons of your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your mother, your father. Try to under. Nobody is all one or the other. Find the good, recognize the bad. Advertising is the negation of intelligence. Mm-hmm. It is an attempt to do something which is illegitimate. Tell you this is a wonderful, 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 and there's nothing negative about it. Right. 
And you know what? Most Americans are bitterly aware that they've been lied to because that's what this is, that they've been hustled because that's what this is. And so if we allow scientific information to be filtered through profit-driven advertising types of mentality, mm -hmm. cannot be surprised if large numbers of our people make self-destructive decisions based on their skepticism and so on. Bottom line, you have to have in every society a major institutional alternative to profit-driven information. Mm -hmm. Not to say that you can't corrupt the government or a clinic or a, a private. Sure. You have, to have more than one. Right. I mean, that's, it'd be nice to have right. a union, union papers, union media, that's that's, right. you know, uh, maybe Christian media or Jewish papers or whatever you want. Right. Like right. just like the variety of other institutions that are motivated other than by something called my profit. family. Doug, I'll give you a simple example. My mm -hmm. family is French. My father was born in France. You know, mm -hmm. I was born in Ohio, but my parents were immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I've been speaking French and German all my life. Uh, I learned them before I learned English. So you have them kind of hardwired in your brain. Mm -hmm. uh, I go to France a lot. I like that country. I go to a little village. I sit there in the morning. I have my espresso and my little croissant. I'm a very happy person watching the world go by. One of the things I've noticed over the many years I've done this is how people pass me on the in the cafe on their way to the little news store, uh, the place where you could buy newspapers and mm -hmm. cigarettes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's what, what the typical gentleman or lady who's going to sit down at the table next to me, have his or her coffee, and, and read the newspaper. They buy Le Figaro. That is the conservative major newspaper for France. They buy Le Monde. That is the liberal, left of center, major newspaper from sort of the New York Times of mm -hmm. France. But they also buy L'Humanité. That's the name of the Communist Party newspaper. Also yeah, yeah. Daily, everywhere. And they buy them all, and they look at the articles they're interested in. You know, uh, COVID, or a national strike, or a recent election, or whatever it is. And they're interested to see the different ways the media handle it. And that's the way they talk about it. They're, they like the conservative. They think the communists are off the wall on this one and, or, or vice versa. It doesn't matter. It's like their Sunday talk shows. I remember being a, a teenager the first time I was over there. And because I speak the language, I don't have that problem. So I'm watching Sunday morning, you know, meet the press type of thing. And they introduced the head of the Communist Party. I'd never seen that before. The guy didn't have any horns. Seemed like a nice guy. Answered the questions. The reporters asked him a question. It wasn't all adversarial. They kind of gave him a chance to make his argument. They criticized it. or It was so normal, so routine, that it became clear to me what an odd country I live in where that would be unthinkable. That right, right. person, you know, uh, and that, I, I was ashamed. I was ashamed. Why are we so? Why do we have a taboo? You know, 
we save up money to go to France because it's so exciting to eat there and to look at the old chateaus, but we don't come home having learned, ooh, uh, what about this? Even yeah. now, Doug, when I say, I explain to people, the biggest country in Europe right now, economically speaking, is Germany. Mm. And Germany had an election about a month ago. And in that election, one political party got the most votes. It's a socialist party. <laughs> then I tell them, you know, nearby is a country called Portugal. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, yes. Let me tell you about the government of Portugal. It's a three-party coalition government, was elected in 2016 and re-elected with a bigger majority uh, in 2020. The three-party coalition, here we go. The largest of the three is the Portuguese Socialist Party. The second largest of the three is the Portuguese Communist Party. And the third one is the Portuguese Green Party. That's what's running Portugal. Mm. And guess what? In Portugal, all drugs are legal. They mm. have solved their drug problem by the legalization and the, therefore the medical management of everybody who's got a problem, who's, who's got an addiction to deal with. And they use the money they get from taxing drugs to pay for the massive governmental education program about the dangers of drugs and, the, and then the treatment of people who, who are at. I mean, we have so much to learn, and it's our own taboos that block us from learning it. Yeah. You know, Richard, I, when I asked to have you on, I was given an hour, and I, and I want to uh, make like an announcement at this point, like if the people who want to watch the second half of our conversation uh, to really get, you know, the, the things that are taboo to hear what we can say off, uh, not in public should go over to the Patreon. So like right now, what we talk about from this point on for the next 25 minutes or so is for people who are paying me a little something, okay. which means that, that it's going to be a little bit more um, theoretical maybe, or, or uh, you're not as topical perhaps, um, but I, so just to start off and now, now we're in what's called the parrot room.